so now we're recording and we are off sons of the hunt podcast season three episode eight we're here with jeff smith he's the pennsylvania fish and boat commission susquehanna river biologist that's correct i think i got that right cool so uh there's this, been this topic ripping through social media it's been in the newspapers um we got pretty interested in it so we wanted to reach out and uh and get some facts from from a credible source that's something that we always try to do mm-hmm. i mean before uh you know you start buying into all the myths and and all the fallacies that go flying around our goal is to try to put out credible information so we went and got ourselves a biologist who knows quite a bit about the northern snakehead which uh, from what i understand is a highly invasive uh species of fish that's correct so i'm gonna pop that up in this the stream just uh <laughs> they're so gnarly looking man they, they yeah, are they're they're freaky and i understand how it could make somebody uneasy i guess seeing this thing but uh can you tell us a little bit about the the background of this fish and maybe why we're starting to see it here yeah, this species is is native to asia um particularly southeast asia um it is an important part of the food uh, system in, in those areas. People really like to eat them. They're quite a tasty animal. Uh, and that's probably the reason they're here more than anything. Um, they came over as a part of a uh, food, um, a species that they, people like to enjoy for food. Uh, they bring them into live fish markets. Um, there's some, some myth around um, their survival of the fish. And so they try to keep them alive as long as they can because they feel there's healing power. Uh, that dwindles as the longer they're dead. So they try to eat them as close, kill them as close to eating them as possible. So the live fish trade is probably where they uh, made it into the country and, and were released. Um, this species in particular is is the number one snakehead species in terms of um, consumption in China. Those are really important species. There are more than some of the other species of snakeheads out there. So that's probably how it's here. There are some live fish markets that exist in some states. Um, they're illegal in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and some of our surrounding states, but they still kind of make it in. And some cultures uh, have um, a part of that culture where releasing the fish into the wild to perpetuate the species as part of it. And that's likely one of the origins for the way it got here. Some of the other species are part of the aquarium trade. They're a little more colorful and vibrant and were kept that way and are usually relatively small. Uh, however, they outgrow their tanks and then people release them into the wild that way. Those are mainly the southern species that we don't see here. But this one this one likely came in uh, via the food trade. So with it, I mean, I mean, a lot of the things that I've read about are that it's a it's a choice fish. They they refer to it. Have you got to try one yet? I have not. Really? Uh, I'm really intrigued to try one, but I we have not eaten one yet um, that's kind of on the list of things to do uh, is to try but yeah everyone everyone i know that's had them says they're outstanding and the people that haven't are, are really interested in trying them yeah i mean so that, i really hope to the try one, one here at some point yeah the one thing about our podcast is no matter what we end up talking about wild game or fish at some point of every episode pretty much so when i heard about this <laughs> and I, I read choice fish the first thing i was thinking is i gotta find one of these things and and eat it but uh I guess before we, we get too much further into it, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how, how you got into uh, being a, a fish biologist, essentially? Yeah. 
I've kind of been all over the place. Um, I grew up in North Central Pennsylvania, kind of in the portion of they consider the Pennsylvania Wilds now. Um, being an outdoors person, I fished and hunted and did everything kind of locally here. Um, so I had some interest in that. Um, started a biology degree because I kind of wanted to go that direction, but wasn't quite sure. I got an internship that I kind of sealed the deal for me. I worked for five years professionally um, prior to going back to grad school. Um, I worked in Delaware River before, went back to grad school, um, got my master's degree working with fish and, and mussels in large rivers, and then uh, ended up at Fish and Boat uh, in 2008. I started uh, working on, on large rivers here as well. So kind of started off thrust into the, the smallmouth bass issue um, at that point in time and kind of went through various research projects on that front and now kind of expanding in a little bit in what I do. And I'm I started working on invasive flat catfish probably in 2014 or 15. Um, been working on those now for five or six years. And then um, was kind of the snakehead thing is the, the next up and comer. So I started on that just this year. I think that the, the, the one word that I think sets alarms off in everyone's head is the word invasive. Yeah. I think that people hear that and they start pretty much freaking out. Can you kind of define what would make a species invasive and how an invasive species can affect a, an ecosystem or a habitat? Yeah, invasive species are, are generally non-native um, and that can be globe, you know, not from the, the continent or from another place within the same continent. So we talked about flatted catfish before. They're native in the western part of the state. They're just not native in the Atlantic Slope or the Susquehanna or Delaware, and they've they've moved in and kind of taken over a little bit. Um, the invasive aspect really jumps off at a number of aspects. Is, is they're really quick to colonize and push something else out. And really the key component is they have an ecological impact or a monetary or economic impact. Those are really the two clinchpins of of kind of what an invasive species is versus something that's just introduced it, it's going to have some sort of detrimental effect um, in, in one of those two areas um, so with the um, snakehead it moves in and colonizes rapidly kind of meets that first bill it's non-native it comes from this one in case an exotic it comes from uh, asia and then has some sort of detrimental effect it either preys upon or has some sort of impact on native species or, or naturalized species in that system that causes some sort of harm, albeit monetary or ecological. Um, right now, we're still trying to collect data on what that impact is uh, with northern snakehead. Um, kind of early in the game, uh, we're only roughly eight to 10 years in, depending on where you're at, and we're still trying to understand what's going on. Um, with that species, not only in the Susquehanna, but in other areas uh, where it's been colonized um, a little bit earlier. So I, I know that, I think that the main, it seems like it's coming up the East Coast, seems to be like the, the way it would be moving. Yeah, it, it's been hopping around um, based on its means of introduction. So those that are uh, of a human source, someone illegally transporting them, or, or unwittingly transporting them and releasing them. Uh, those are the ones that pop up here, there, and everywhere. Um, so the first ones we had in Philadelphia, then, or sorry, the first ones that occurred on the East Coast in Maryland, and then the ones we had in Philadelphia area 
were, were human transportation. People moved them there. These more recent ones, like the ones in the Susquehanna, they're beginning to migrate. So this population likely came um, from the Potomac and Rappahannock and lower Chesapeake Bay populations. And during the high flow events of 2017 and 2018, and a little bit of 2019, that high flow event flowing in the Chesapeake Bay lowered the salinity. And these fish could come out of some of those tributaries and make their way upstream. And that's probably the, the means they, they use to get um, to the upper Chesapeake Bay and then in the Susquehanna River in recent years. Um, it's probably just their own migration. They typically do large spawning runs in April, May, um, depending on temperature. And some of those high water events timed perfectly with that and really facilitated that movement, gave them that opportunity to take off upstream. And then the fishways in the lower Susquehanna are operating at that time to move American shad. And that's what they took advantage of this year and, and made it into the lower Susquehanna system um, in May in this case. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I was what I what I found kind of interesting when I started looking into this, talking about the migration of them, mm -hmm. is that they can actually travel on land for a bit. They have kind of like a lung of sorts. Is that what I read? Is that yeah. correct? I mean, and how much of a factor is that in the actual migration of the fish that they can actually travel short distances over land? It's probably quite limited with this species. Some of the other okay. snakeheads can move some distance and they can breathe they're obligate air breathers, so they can gulp air and hold it and, and res respire that way um, as well. It really allows them to more live in areas that have very low dissolved oxygen, more so than overland travel in this situation, okay, especially with this species. But it allows them to live in some marginal habitats that other fish might not be able to survive in. And that allows their ability to colonize to be a little bit better and also facilitates that movement a little bit more because they can tolerate a, a little uh more harsh condition and, and still survive man that's that's pretty incredible yeah it's it, the one thing you said there is pretty interesting to me that you, they they're moving towards or i don't know if they're they're tending to move towards water with more dissolved oxygen is that something that you guys are finding so like in, in your research around this are you guys aiming at trying to figure out habitat or what they're feeding on or, or how, what kind of dictates your research in a situation like this? Right now we're kind of in that, that identify and capture um, phase of this. We're still trying right now. We know there's a supposedly a certain number of individuals out there. So we're trying to target those and catch them before they spawn. Um, that's one of the races we're up against. So you're going to probably spawn here in the next few weeks. Um, the temperatures are right and the conditions are right. They'll begin to spawn. Um, so prior to this, um, a lot of the habitats they prefer didn't exist yet. They like large weed beds and those haven't developed seasonally yet. So we know there's only limited places they could be. They like warmer water than was than existed that time of year. So we're targeting areas with warmer water, shallow mud flats, places that are gonna warm more quickly, uh, warm water discharges, things like that, trying to identify, can capture these species before they, before they have an opportunity to spawn. Now um, we're gonna continue to do that and try to isolate those individuals. We're also going to try to learn about more of their habit habits and usage so we can understand them um, better moving forward and what we can expect as they move into other areas. Because, um, you know, this is, uh, we've not identified all the individuals yet. We've got a small portion between us and anglers. We're probably found 10 of the 21 or so that have been released or, or passed through the dam. Um, so we're kind of in the initial race to try to capture as many as possible is still going on. We've been working down there. 
periodically throughout the past few weeks um, to try to capture as many as possible. We'll do that throughout the summer uh, and then into the fall. We may have some advantages again in the fall as temperatures cool. They may recruit to some warmer water areas again, and we might be able to it'll be more efficient in finding them. But once once the weed beds and other factors like that kind of come into play this summer, uh, they're going to be widely distributed and tougher to track down. How do you guys kind of have a bead on on a number right now? In this instance, as far as we know, they were passed through a fishway. And okay. part of that fishway operation is the operators can actually identify and count the fish as they move through, through a viewing window. So they were able to count the number that actually came through while it was open. They actually saw some of the fish coming, were able to remove a portion of the fish um, before they were actually passed it through to the upstream side of the dam. I think they moved 14, uh, were able to isolate and remove 14. Oh, wow. Um, before they pass. So that's the reason we have such a, a strong beat on the number is that aspect right now. Uh, what we don't know is if any were moved um, outside of outside the fishway, if if anglers or, or other people in the population moved them upstream. That we can't account for. But we do know the ones that were passed through the fishway at this point. And as far as we know, those are the only ones that made it through. Interesting. So based on, on that number, could you give... Uh, like a level of severity like how how dire is the situation right now I, it seems like it's like you said pretty much in its infancy here but mm -hmm. i mean is this something that we want to head off and just totally put to a halt right now or is this something that yeah, you're trying and that's, to manage that's the goal at this point prevention is worth an ounce of cure you know a pound of prevention here is, is going to be what we want to do, we want to limit these fish as quickly as possible and isolate them. So right now, theoretically, they're caught between two dams. They're identified in this one pool. Um, they, they can't get through upstream on their own volition at this point. Um, so they're kind of isolated. So right now we're trying to, to capture and isolate as many of them as possible to prevent them colonizing and moving in. So we, you know, it's a small number right now, but the importance is high because we can actually make the most effect uh, when they're at this stage than we can later when there's more of them. Right. So we don't have a lot um, of options available to at this point because that system is so large. Uh, in Maryland, the first record in Maryland in 2002 was in an isolated pond and they were able to rote known or which is a, a fish uh, killing compound that basically limits the, their uptake of dissolved oxygen. And they were actually effectively able to remove them from that pond, but it was an isolated situation. There was no water flowing in, no water flowing out and they could kind of track them down. Here we're talking about an approximately 6,000 acre impoundment. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. Um, so we really can't effectively do any sort of treatment in there. So most of our um, catches in this place will be mechanical. We're either gonna angle them, electrofish them, something um, in, in order to track them down and, and remove them. So if we can do, we can do as much now before they're well-established, uh, it'll be much uh, to our benefit. Man, yeah, it sounds like you're kind of trying to avoid kind of like an Asian carp syndrome. You know what I mean? Like how they kind of got out of hand in, in, in a lot of areas. Uh, like it sounds like they're pretty uh, pretty stout animals. I mean, do they have a kryptonite? Like is there anything that like uh, outside of like aerial predators or something like that? I mean, is there something that a weakness that can be exploited to try and limit their numbers? Not that we're aware of yet. Um Everything so far is they've just kept increasing. Um, some of the some of the literature out of Virginia um, suggests that these populations have been here for some period of time are leveling off and now starting to decline a little bit. 
Um, but as far as we know, there's no native predator to, to affect them. There are no uh, pathogens yet in the system to affect them either. So they're kind of all only um, kind of going by their, their own accord at this point. Huh. Um, one thing we have heard is that when they spawn, they're pretty easy to approach. So they, they, they are strong nest garters. So as they have their brood, they'll sit there and guard it um, voraciously. So they're kind of still we'll stay in that one spot and we can identify that location and try to catch them there. Um, that may be one of our, one of our key points. However, they do it. They uh, kind of have their spawning locations right in the middle of large weed beds. <laughs> so they may be just a little hole in there that we may be able to see. So that's one advantage you may have moving forward is trying to identify them in these weed beds and, and picking them off there uh, at this point in time as well. So they've kind of, as far as we know, there's not a whole lot that can harm them. They're, they're kind of a interesting beast at this point. If I've handled a few of them now and I'll tell you what, they are strong. They're really interesting. And there's no handles on them. <laughs> and yeah. You grab a hold of them and it's just all muscle and it's all it's circular and round. Yeah. And you just kind of, they just kind of wriggle and, there's not a whole lot to hold on to. I, I read that they, the both the male and female will protect the nest during spawning. Is that correct? Yeah, and that, that's kind of unique because that's that's not common among most fish species. It's usually one or the other, and it's usually the male. But from everything I'm reading as well, it says both parents will be there. That's uh, crazy. Guarding, guarding nest. Yeah. Maybe that's the kryptonite, you know? It could be. <laughs> I, I also read that the, the mother is willing to sacrifice herself for for her i don't know i guess what you'd call it uh, her little swarm the fry but also <laughs> they will immediately eat the mother i i've read oh, some, wow yeah i've read some wild across that one yet yeah that's yeah. uh but that's wikipedia for you so who knows yeah. how how reliable that actually is um it sounds like you guys could make make use of of a drone for finding them yeah that'd be interesting technology um i've not seen it applied here I've seen it applied in some catfish stuff recently um, for identifying stuff, but not a drone is not something that we've considered or heard used before. No. Well, well, no problem. You're welcome. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of the, I've, I've watched quite a few YouTube videos about fishing for them. And it seems like mm -hmm. everyone is mostly in kayaks swimming, going through these little canals of like lily pads and weeds and, uh, it's it's almost like they're in like four inches of water. Yeah, and and I can tell you the ones that we've captured so far, that's where they've been. Um, in both cases, they've been right up on the bank, and in very little water, and uh, that may be part of their, like you said, the way to get after them, is they they use that unique cover. Like I said, I think they want to be warm. Yeah, and still it's not. Now it's finally getting to the temperatures they they prefer. Um, even though it's a tropical species, it's more temperate. So our temperatures here aren't going to harm them a bit. Um, they're fine down to zero degrees Celsius or, or right around freezing. And they're they're fine up to around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So they're not going to have really any threat here. Um, but it does appear they'd like to be a little bit warmer than cooler. Um, so we're hoping to use that to our advantage as much as we can. <laughs> Such a crazy fish. It's just it's mm -hmm. wild. And I, I'm I'm definitely all I could think about is is frying one up at this point. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, I have to put a bounty out on one of them, see if we can get ourselves one. <laughs> so yeah, they, uh, apparently they're catching like crazy below the dam in Lower Susquehanna right now. So they all kind of moved up in stage there. Um, 
this spring and people have been catching them like crazy down there um which is kind of not good news because at some point they're going to make their way through but yeah there, there are people having quite a bit of fun down there uh targeting them so I smell a road they, trip yeah hopefully I, they stay I, there i'm in uh, uh so how so what's the the guidance right now on catching or I, I don't know if there's any regulation can you can you bow fish for them right now is it pretty much open season yeah, I think they're among the animals that are able to be targeted with a bow and arrow. Um, we're, we're asking anglers or whoever contacts them to capture and kill the fish upon upon their capture and report them to us uh, where they get them. Um, so we can also identify any populations that we didn't know about. Um, so uh, I can tell you from handling a few of them, they aren't the easiest animal to dispatch. They, they are pretty hardy. Um, so just kind of throwing them up in the bank and thinking they're going to be, you know, they're going to die is, isn't necessarily the case. Um, so those, the people that are going to capture them have to really secure them well and make sure that they're taking them home with them. Um, they can be eaten. In fact, they're supposed to be great. I have not tried to flay once. I don't know what it's like at this point to flay it out, but every, everything we've read so far is just um, kind of shows us that they're great. So, you know, we, we encourage people that, that harvest them to take them and eat them or do whatever they like with them, but don't put them back in the water. Yeah. So you, you said that you've, uh, you have, uh, handled a couple of them Were mm-hmm. are you guys checking their, their, their guts and seeing what they're preying on? Is it pretty much anything that they could get in their mouth or, or what, uh, what's pretty much their, uh, their main diet consists of? Right now, it appears that their diet um, consists of primarily the species closest to them. So they're not going out of their way or targeting anything in particular. Um, the fish we are catching, we are removing their stomachs and seeing uh, what's in them so far. I think we're only one for two on the fish we've removed stomachs from um, that had something in them. Um, one had a bunch of minnows. It looks like right now I've got the fish frozen, so we're going to identify them with DNA here soon. Um, but it had five or six minnows, different small fish in the stomach that we're going to identify. The literature from the other areas we've been working on this for, uh, for a longer period of time suggests that bluegills um, are a large part of their diet, especially in the weedy areas, um, in lakes and in some of the rivers, as well as a fish called the banded killifish. Um, it also favors those habitats uh, where it's at. So it doesn't look like it's preferentially selecting for anything. It's just taking uh, the opportunities that it has available to it and to develop its prey base. But they've eaten everything from snakes to frogs to small mammals have been identified yeah. in those studies. Yeah, I could see like baby ducks being pretty easy prey for them. Mm-hmm. And as far as like the kind of going back to the spawning, I mean, like, do they, is, is there anything abnormal in regards to the number of eggs that they they lay or spawn or is it pretty normal as far as numbers concerned like is that an issue do they have like this excessive number of eggs that they can spawn or part of part of the issue as to why they're so easy to colonize is one of a handful of things and and the number of eggs is one of them and it's a term called fecundity uh, so their their ability to reproduce I wouldn't say that they're they're overly fecund, um, for but very similar to a species of that size. So the number of eggs they have is very typical of a fish that is that okay. size. They can spawn four to five times in the summer, 
so they can oh wow they, they can spawn multiple times during one spawning season which means the chance of success is higher the more chances you have at it the better that that they, they can have to spawn in and actually those fish survive and make it through to adulthood they're also that parental guarding aspect is also a key feature um, for a species species that parentally guard rather than just broadcast spawn and you know whatever happens happens tend to be more successful as well so kind of lump those things together is, is one of the reasons that this species is so quick to colonize and successful at colonizing anywhere um, is it kind of throw all those things together um, and it kind of adds up into a pretty formidable <laughs> yeah, it seems uh, like the perfect great. storm. Yeah. Seems like the perfect storm, if you will, you know, for yeah. uh, for an invasive species. Uh, have there been other invasive species in the past that were classified as invasive, but they just kind of molded into the tapestry of the environment a little bit and became part of the everyday? To where, like, there's a couple, like the the red-eared slider turtle. I had no idea that that was invasive. Like, I mm -hmm. thought that I've seen them my whole life. You know what I mean? Pretty much, yep. as far as I remember. So, I mean, they seem to be, I don't know if they're really creating a huge problem as, you know, still, or is that something they just kind of rolled into the environment a little bit? I'm not quite sure the turtle aspect right now myself. I don't deal with them much. Um, with some of our more uh, recent species that have moved in, I think the jury's still out. Um, we, it may be a timing thing. We may not have achieved their threshold yet and snakeheads is among them you know everyone's kind of looking at the data they have in some of the southern states where they've been there longer and are not seeing anything large um, quite yet um, but they have also also suggested that these are these are habitats that are marginal to begin with or they're places that have been so disturbed that they you know their impact um, might not be fully realized because there's not a whole lot left there um, Susquehanna may be holding each of these situations may be a completely different story. Um, yeah. And that's kind of why everyone's withholding judgment is each situation will be, could be substantially a little different. Sure. Um, so moving into the Susquehanna, we really don't know. Um, in that area, we have a species that's in, on the threatened list that we're trying to restore right now. Um, and the, some of the habitats they, they reside in or some of the habitats we're trying to reintroduce this species in as well. Um, so it's kind of one of those things we're really not sure. We'd rather be cautious and not have it here. Sure. Uh, then find out the hard way. Um, a lot of the species we have here, um, believe it or not, weren't here originally. So they've been naturalized over time. Um, but some, like we're, I work at the flathead as well. Again, we're still trying to debate on that one, what's going on. Um, whether it's strictly competition, predatory, what aspect of that's going to be kind of the, the final straw here and into what its impacts are we really don't know at this point so we're trying to gauge all those things and, and it may take 10 years it may take 20 years until it really shows up as to what the impacts are so for snakeheads right now we're not really sure what problems they may cause uh, we really just don't want to find out right <laughs> we'd rather right, keep right. it the other way we'd rather be cautious and not have them here and and really roll the dice and say hey this might not be a problem Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. That's a, it's, yeah, like I said, it's, it seems like it's just that, that perfect storm that they just, you know, it, they couldn't have found a better spot to kind of start to move into. Uh, yeah. And, and all, a lot of those places they moved into, that's been the case is they, they just found a situation that, that they thrive in and other species may not. And, you know, it's kind of, they've made the best of that. And, that, and that's part of the, the reason they do so well. Is, is they can 
they can tolerate a very wide set of conditions and they don't need anything really specific. They can kind of make the most of anything. And, and that's why they're probably doing as well as they are in some of these places. I read they were saltwater tolerant as well. Is, is there any uh, merit to that? To some degree. Um, we're talking um, 18 parts per, parts per million of salt or parts per thousand. It's not that high. Okay. Um, it's, it, what was in the bay in the Potomac area was too heavy for them. They couldn't okay. move much. They were restricted to the freshwater portions of those estuaries. But when we got that freshet of rain um, for a long period of time in 2017, 18 and 19, that was enough to drop the salinity to a point that they could emerge out of there. So that, that they moved on that opportunity. Um, they can tolerate, again, a little bit of salt, not a whole lot of salt. I'm kind of like forgetting what the salt water threshold for ocean water is off the top of my head, but they were maybe half of what the concentration is what they can tolerate. All right. I say, man, talk about throwing another cog in the machine, right? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. They can breathe air. They can breathe salt water, fresh water. They can lift yeah. weights. They can yeah. run. Yeah. yeah. They can, they can <laughs> be a pretty tolerant little animal. Man. Oh, man. So, so I don't know if this is the quite the same as Jay's question, but how about locally? Has there been an invasive species that has kind of gone off the rails and had a strong ecological impact as um, in our area. Yeah, I was trying to come up with some of these earlier. Um, probably the big one that people know the most about would have been zebra mussels, um, 20 or 30 years. Again, not a fish. Yeah. Um, had a lot of economic impacts because it was clogging infrastructure for water intakes and sewage mm -hmm. outfalls and things like that and costing millions, if not billions of dollars in repairs. Um, that was, that's one of the key ones that people may be aware of from the, from the nineties and two thousands, um, of an invasive species that had an economic impact. There are several instances of fish, um, recently that have an impact are a little bit more subtle in, in how the impact occurs. Again, in, um, the Great Lakes, there's a fish called the alewife. It's a marine fish by nature. Um, with stock there as a forage base, either um, accidentally or on purpose by somebody not to create a forage base. Um, it changed the nutrient dynamics of the whole lake. And also as an impact, it became the forage base for lake trout. And it has an enzyme in it that's, that lake trout um, eggs are compromised by in the young. So it's you know kind of a trickle down effect uh, it's actually had an impact on lake trout populations because they're not reproducing because the eggs are of poor quality and can't survive as you know it, it wasn't direct it wiped this one out it had a secondary effect and a tertiary effect before it it actually had an impact and, and limited lake trout in some of the great lakes um, one of the bigger ones closer to home recently is actually blue catfish in the chesapeake bay they are explosive in terms of numbers and they're very high density and, and biomass and they actually right now they take up a third of the entire biomass up Chesapeake Bay. Oh wow. So they really kind of pushed everything else um, to the margins at this point um, to the point they're actually stunting themselves. They're so abundant that fish aren't growing to large size. Kind of a cool aspect of it in recent years uh, commercial fisheries have started now to they've created a market now for blue catfish and they've started to fish those populations to something near equilibrium and uh, to try to keep them in control. So they have found a little bit of a measure. Um, it's one of those things that's here to stay, though. 
um, unfortunately, but they can keep it at least in check through recreational angling and commercial angling or commercial fishing, excuse me, at this point. Wow. So I guess that's, that, that's something. The, the alewives, they uh, kind of started uh, near us, it's Lake Wall and Paul Pack. It's a very large yep. lake up in our yep. area, and they're pretty common, the alewives there in, in Lake Wall and Paul Pack. Uh, you talk about the economic impact of some of these invasive species. What what kind of economic impact would something like a snakehead have? I mean, how could that have an like? You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, you know, well, yeah, the economic impact. I mean, is that just against other sport fish, or would it just compromise that? Or how would that have an have an impact in that that fashion? At this point, we're uncertain. Um, hypothetically, yes, it could impact sport fish. Like for instance, smallmouth bass, if we find that they're having impact smallmouth bass, it would hurt the smallmouth bass fishery, which is a larger monetary base. Um, kind of another hypothetical was they thought there was gonna be an impact on, on largemouth bass in the tidal Potomac river. And people come from all over to fish that, that tidal Potomac. And that was one of the concerns that that when they moved in, they were gonna have an impact in that species and cause some pretty detrimental effects there. Um, so far that hasn't been seen um that's been real tangible uh, at this point but it's still a concern yeah um so that's that's kind of how a species like this could kind of evolve into something that could have monetary economic effects it is impacts on other other species um that are of high economic importance as well Man, Jesus is crazy. Yeah. You're blowing my mind. I thought I, I kind of did a little bit of research. I was like, all right, I think I got a good handle on this thing. And nope. No. Nope. <laughs> it, it, it just, it kind of reminds me, uh, it, it's, it's a little remnant of the, of CWD. Like we've got CWD attacking us from the West. We've got the snakeheads attacking us from the South. It's just, it, it's, it's wild. What's the just, yeah. I mean, it's just not something that I, I ever thought that we'd be seeing a brand new species just being introduced into the area. Now, uh, we, I think we, we've kind of run the, run the gamut on the snakehead here, but you also said that flathead catfish mm -hmm. is another invasive species. I know that you're doing a lot of research on that currently alongside of the snakehead. What, uh, yeah. what, what's your, the, the main research topic there? Are, are you, so as far as researching the snakehead, which is in its infancy, how far along are you with the flathead catfish? Yeah, we're kind of in different places with the flathead right now. We actually have a unique experience now with the snakehead is that it, it hasn't been here. Uh, most of these places that have worked with them, um, the cat was out of the bag, so to speak, when people finally got an opportunity to look. So there was already some sort of level of establishment um, before they could get a chance to research. We're kind of a blank slate right now. They've not been here. So we have a really unique opportunity to kind of seize the moment and understand kind of the baseline of what they move in and what they do. So we're kind of unique there. Flatheads were more established before we unfortunately got a chance to look at them. So they'd been at least in lower river probably 10 to 12 years um, before we got a chance to really focus in on them. But further upstream, they haven't been there yet. So that's part of our research is understanding the differences in the areas where they've been established and then the areas where they're starting to establish now or or have not established. And I think we have a couple of those left. Um, the West Branch Susquehanna appears to be one where they have not colonized yet. Um, so we're hoping to gather as much of this preliminary data before they move in to know what kind of and kind of register what the impacts are once they move into a system like that. Um, so 
right now, the focus of our research is kind of understanding the distribution of them as well as abundance, sending some, some baselines for abundance and uh, growth parameters. Uh, when invasive species like this moves in, like I said, there's no really competition. So they grow really fast, both in terms of numbers and individual size. So we're trying to understand how that is working in this system. Um, and that's been documented all up and down the East Coast where they've moved in is that that, that first wave of fish grows really, really rapidly, about four, three to four times as fast as they do in their native range. So we actually, like I said, we mentioned earlier, we have a unique opportunity. We've got, we're studying them in the Western part of the state as well. So in their native range. So we're comparing and contrasting what they look like in their invasive range versus their native uh, range, which is just a few hundred miles away and at the same latitude. So we got this really unique opportunity here. Um, so we've been doing the, the growth and distribution stuff for probably four years now. Um, our next step is to understand their diet. And that's gonna be kind of what the impact, where the impact lies. Um, what, what are they doing to other species? We know they're, they're, they grow very large. Um, biggest individual we've handled so far is in the mid forties. Um, wow. My colleagues in Maryland are helping me. Caught one a couple years ago that was 56. Um, that's a uh, huge <laughs> fish for, for the, uh, this latitude in the, in the East coast. Um, so they're growing pretty rapidly. That fish was probably, uh, I think it was only 13 or 14 years old. Um, from what I recall, um, my counterparts in the Western part of the state have aged fish so far, um, out to 45 years. So, um, to give you, so give that three fish. to four times that number I, uh, gave you earlier. That's kind of a pretty good example of that. So now we're going to understand our diet. What are they eating in the system? Um, the other diet studies that have been done, uh, the key fish in their diet don't exist here. Um, so it's going to be quite different in the Susquehanna relative to some of the previous work that's been done in the Potomac drainage, uh, down in Virginia and Maryland. So we're going to see a little different makeup to their diet here. Um, they're pretty cool species in that they have no gape restriction. It's called basically their mouth's big enough to eat just about anything. Wow. <laughs> so there's no upper limit on what they can consume. And it's after about 20 inches in length, which is in this system, two to three years, um, their diet switches almost entirely to fish. So their impacts are largely going to be on fish species. Whereas most other species that move in are, are more omnivorous and eat a number of things. Bloodheads and, and snakeheads for that matter seem to focus primarily on fish. So their impacts can be on recreational fisheries in this system. Uh, can't wait to kind of get through this and really start to learn what they're doing and what impact they're having. Yeah. So, so you said that they're, they're their main prey, what they're mainly eating in the western part of the state doesn't exist here. What what species is that? Well, the, the, the studies I was referencing are actually in Virginia in, in the invasive populations in the Potomac. Um, oh, down okay. there, they're eating white perch oh. and gizzard shad. Um, white perch was number one and gizzard shad was two. Um, we still have gizzard shad, but not at a very high abundance. So they're probably going to be picking up something else. So items one and two that top of the list just don't exist here so with really any frequency so they're going to be supplementing that with something else because they're like i said a 40 pound fish needs a lot to eat yeah uh, they yeah. a to get to that point and b to stay at that point um so they are doing a lot of consumption um everything we've seen so far suggests that they're eating the they're not preferentially selecting prey um but they're taking the most abundant fish that's around them um but those are most abundant fish could be primary game fish species. Um, so may have some negative effects yeah. on those species. So, so they're just kind of like opportunistic feeders, whatever's there, they're going to eat it. 
and, and there's like I said they don't have with no gape restriction they can eat just about anything there's nothing <laughs> there's nothing that's going to be able to get away from that mouth so so doing all this research I feel like you must pick up some some wild fishing tips you, you must do pretty well at this point um, do you go out fishing for cats a lot or uh i don't i haven't actually caught a flathead on rod and reel um kind of kind of one of those interesting aspects that we don't get to fish as much uh as we'd like this is really the peak of the fishing season is really the peak uh, of our field season so we're kind of hopping um this time of year i enjoy fishing a lot i get out to do it relatively frequently but not as much as i'd like but i i fish for bass a lot um uh, I started fishing for trout again, based on where I live. I got a stream in my backyard and some of the well-known trout streams are within a few miles of my house. So I've done a little bit more of that lately, but, uh, yeah, I've not fished for catfish yet. Uh, flatheads, um, so far. So that may be a new one, um, to, to try out at some point in time, but yeah, they're, a, they're pretty interesting, interesting species. Um, from what I've heard is, is there, fishing standpoint. Is there anything from your research that you would use if you were going to go? Like, is oh, yes. there anything you've pulled they, yet? They, they love live fish. Live fish. Um, live, live bait is the ticket um, for flatheads. Really? Um, they are, in some of the literature suggested, like if you're trying to catch them for research studies, using, um, using live fish, you can almost preferentially select entirely for flathead catfish. So like if you were using baiting things with with live fish you tend to do better than say chicken livers for for mm-hmm. uh, channel catfish or something like that you can almost select entirely for fly catfish in mixed populations by using live prey items um so that's kind of the big thing the anglers i've heard are using um sunfish a live live sunfish a lot for for bait um i've also heard that they're very picky and quickly catch on to angler behavior Really? So they know now a large bluegill has a good chance of not being something they want to eat. So, uh, you know, they, they kind of learn angler behavior. They learn what's going on and, and can work around it and avoid those things as well. I heard their, their, their avoidance mechanisms are quite high. And some people have tried to catch them as part of research projects as you get one or two and then that's it. Um, really? Which is something else. So, yeah. So anything live, um, live bait, large fish, um, kind of scale up your, your tackle to, the real heavy, heavy stuff, kind of surf type rods. Um, yeah. cause we're talking fish 30 plus pounds in most cases, if you're going to catch a, a decent one, um, and your bait appropriately size that up as well. I've heard people now using large suckers hmm. or other, other fish like that to try to attract them, um, the, the bigger fish. That's interesting. And I think that's pretty, pretty useful information for anybody out there who's uh, yeah. trying to catch flathead right now. And I can also tell you, if you're interested in catching a flathead, um, they are quite delicious. Yeah. They are one of, they're, they're very interesting fish to flay. Um, the, the front of the front of the flay is more like a deer tenderloin. And then it flattens out to be like a flatter, more typical fish fillet as you get close, farther back on the body. But yeah, that's one of, uh, one of my favorites when we get them is, you know, kind of introduce people to them and say, Hey, try this thing out and kind of yeah. show them the picture. And they go, Oh my God, no, I'm not eating that. Yeah. Uh, but it's absolutely outstanding. What, what's the go-to method of preparation? Uh, soak them in buttermilk overnight. Yep. And then bread them and deep fry them. 
yeah. beer batter works too, but breading them deep frying the typical Southern catfish way is, is outstanding. That sounds amazing. That's that seems to be the go-to. Is it a cornmeal? Yeah. You like the cornmeal, or do you go to just like a standard like Italian seasoned breading? I use the cornmeal, either Cajun yeah. style or just the regular stuff. In both cases, they're they're really good. I cut it up relatively nice. small so it cooks quickly, and but I, I think the 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 buttermilk thing kind of takes some of the the gaminess away. Uh, I've heard people tell me they taste like dirt, um, and. and think buttermilk is one of the ways to counteract that nice. uh, I'm, I'm just something just popped in my head uh i have a few friends who fish the the susquehanna but further up like in in tunkhannock area and mm-hmm. they they tend not to eat any cats that they pull out of the river out, yeah. out of fear of contaminants and whatnot can can you speak to that at all and what uh if there's anything going on with the the flatheads in that regard we do know for the flatheads in the lower portion of Susquehanna, so from Sunbury down to the mouth, there is a, a restriction of one meal per month of fish over 30 inches in length. So only the biggest fish in the population um, is a one meal per month restriction. That far north, I do not call the restrictions off the top of my head. The consumption advisories, they're in the back of the book. Um, I suggest when you're going to be in that area to, to take a quick look there. I know they, I know they're testing fish more frequently now mm-hmm. uh, in, in most of these cases, every other year in some of these larger, more popular fisheries like the Susquehanna river. Um, they're, they're really testing fish pretty heavily and, and catfish is, is in the rotation channel catfish. Um, so kind of consult the book um, and, and see what's there. I'm not recalling that stretch off the top of my head. Um, I think only channel catfish is listed up there. What type of contaminant would cause to put a limitation on consuming them? In um, the flyhead catfish, or yeah, flyhead catfish, it's PCBs. Um, okay. So it's kind of old legacy PCBs in the system. Uh, we do have a blanket um, statewide recommendation for depositional mercury from, uh, from power plants in the Midwest that's been here for ages of one meal per week. And that's all wild catfish species in Pennsylvania. Uh, People are not supposed to eat more than one meal per week of those. And, and that really governs all of them. And, and other than those large flatheads, that, that's the only consumption advisory that still applies is that one meal per week. It's not mm-hmm. to get the biggest fish that there's any concentrations high enough right, right. to be of concern. How about it? Man, oh, man. That might become a challenge for uh, certain people to only eat them once a week. I mean, Yeah. Yeah. I guess depending uh, on how frequent they, they end up being and people – you know, how frequently they're catching them. Yeah. Oh, what's, what's the, the, the craziest thing you ever found inside of a catfish in all of your research? Probably the nuttiest thing I, we found last year was a, a, a flight of catfish that was only about 28 inches long. So it wasn't exceptionally large one, just kind of a middle of the road, average size fish. And, and when I opened it up, it had a 14 inch smallmouth in it. So near, okay. it basically was stomach from front to back. Wow. Um, wow. Like its entire abdominal cavity was one, one fish. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a really formidable species. They are, yeah, you know, they're, they can handle just about anything. Uh, I see why they do so well um, in, in moving in these places. Cause they're just, just kind of really, primitive beast that's really not a whole lot can harm it and it can 
like I said, take advantage of everything, and it's very adaptive. Um, they use pretty much anything for cover. Uh, they've moved into like fishways and kind of set up shop because it's a structure, and they'll kind of just hang out there um, and and eat other fish that come by. They, they've they're really adaptive and and really kind of a voracious feeder and very opportunist. Um, so they're going to be a, they're going to be a problem as they continue to move. That sounds like you might want to encourage a turf war between the flatheads yeah. and the snakeheads. I mean, that might benefit somebody. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they kind of stay in different environments. Um, so they're really not going to really contact each other uh, too much. One of my questions was, you actually brought it up, the, the flatheads habitat. Mm -hmm. they are, they're not really like hole dwellers or, or they're not like making nests or they're just finding cover. Is that pretty much what I'm, what I'm gathering. Yeah. Or? They, they prefer large. Yeah. They're cavity nesters. Um, they prefer very deep water to pierce and in these situations in large cover objects, whether it be boulders, logs, things of that nature. So they really have, they don't have the mud banks that you'd see, you know, people noodling them in the, in the Midwest around here. So it appears to be deep, deep water areas, deep holes. Um, with large boulders, logs, things of that nature that they tend to prefer. And as, of your, as we're noticing downstream, as they become more abundant, uh, that depth thing becomes relative. You know, they're, they're still going to prefer the deeper area, maybe two feet instead of one feet deep. You know, they're just going right. to pick the, the deeper area. Um, we had some areas we were working in 2016 when it was a really low flow year. And we were in an area that there was probably uh, water depth was no more than 18 inches, probably for hundreds of yards, if not thousands of yards in any direction around us. There's just one channel that was probably three feet deep instead of 18 inches. And every large boulder in there had a tail sticking out the back of it, a flathead tail. So they just kind of knew that that was the place they, they did better. And they just kind of were in every cover object. It was there, there was a fish hanging out in it. Um, so they're, they're, that's kind of their main thing um, is that deep water and big cover objects is what they're typically focusing on in this system. Again, that can be relative. It could be just the deepest area around there. Gotcha. That's, that's interesting. That's a, an, another good tip for people who are targeting. Just these say, another, another good angling tip, you know, yeah. find that deeper water if you can. Well, we're, we, we are rolling up on an hour, but there's, there was a, another thing that I had written down here that uh, I came across your name in an article um, about the smallmouth bass kill in the Susquehanna. Mm -hmm. Just found out about it when I when I found this article. I didn't know this was an event. Can you kind of uh, outline this event and what happened? Because actually it's kind of relevant to what's happening right now. What yeah, so when the smallmouth bass mortality event really started um, back in 2005. Uh, and, and what we were having is we were having a high mortality event of juvenile fish. So fish that respond uh, this time of year, um, we're dying a couple of weeks from now. So fish that responded in the spring, we're developing lesions in July, uh, late June, early July, and, and dying um, in large numbers uh, due, due to disease. Um, so with this, with the reproductive ecology of smallmouth bass, they typically have infrequent large year classes. So, so there's a one out of maybe three or four years, there's a really large year class, and that kind of builds and sustains your population for a period of time. So that those good year classes weren't happening because we were having large mortality events. Um, so 
we went for a long period of time, really from about 2005 to maybe 2012, uh, where we had high mortality of juveniles um, because of disease-related mortality. So we weren't seeing any new fish come into the population. So we had a, a small, very small population of large fish. Um, they would spawn, everything would be fine, and then the mortality would happen after the fact. Um, and we found out that a, one of the key contributors was a virus, largemouth bass virus, um, which wasn't thought to affect smallmouth bass, but a study uh, in cooperation with us, funded by Pennsylvania Sea Grant and done by Michigan State, demonstrated that it can affect smallmouth bass and, and can, dis, uh, can affect them pretty handily as well. But that in conjunction with another another number of factors that were happening in the systems, so we have some parasites that are kind of novel, um, other bacterial pathogens that are present in the system. All of those playing off one another um, probably made it a, a much more worse situation than it would have been otherwise. So the combination of all those factors together, including a new virus, um, really had a pretty large impact. After about 2012, um, the disease-related mortality started to drop, and we started to see fish recruit the population again. And we started to see an increase in abundance um, 2012 through about 2015, 2016. 2015 was a very large year class um, that, that survived and did quite well. And that was kind of digging us out of the hole. And in recent years, we've seen the abundance increase um, into where it is kind of similar to what it was in the past now. So we're, we're four or five years out um, from a good year uh, last really good year class. Um, those fish are getting up to really catchable size. Now they're probably in the 14, 12 to 14 inch um, size range. People are starting to catch them with the size people want to target. Um, so those fish are now moving into the population. Um, Pierce 2019 was a really good year class as well. So we're hearing a lot about those fish. We won't get out to sample those till this fall. Uh, in the middle of Susquehanna, I'll be working next week, uh, next two weeks actually on the upper Susquehanna doing bass surveys as well. So um, we won't get our, our first look to that middle Susquehanna stretch until September, but everything we kind of have suggests that we had a good year class last year. So we're going to start to see those numbers build again and kind of be, be a pretty solid population down there again. So, so events like that, could you say that they tend to end up making the population stronger once they bounce out of it? It's hard to say. Um, in this case, with a virus, like it like appears to be a major factor here, uh, community, the population has developed some sort of resiliency. So over time, that's why we've seen it kind of wane. It's, it's the thought is that, that they started to become immune to it after they were exposed um, a couple of times. Some of the other factors may have changed as well that we're not sure of. So we're not 100% sure it was entirely uh, this immunity aspect to it, but um, some of the other factors may have changed as well, but for whatever reason, we've seen disease-related mortality decrease. Uh, and then we've probably turned over the entire population at least once since then. So wow. pretty much the entire, we have a complete turnover. Um, five to 10 years is pretty typical of smallmouth bass. Five is kind of the going average for a generation. Uh, we've aged some fish as old as 15 um, in this system as well. So they can live here, they can live quite long here um, and have done pretty well. Uh, despite all the threats, but they're they're doing they're coming back and things are looking pretty good. A couple couple more strong year classes. Situation this year shaping up to be really good as well. So we may have two strong back to back year classes as what, and that's, that's really what kind of bolsters things. Great, that's good news. It's good news, especially for guys who love the smallmouth. They're a fun fish. Big, big fan, big fan. Very fun fish. One of my favorites. Indeed, indeed. So. How about as far as smallmouth go? 
in, in your research there, what, what can you pull from that that you can apply to being a successful smallmouth angler? It's mainly the little things is understand the seasonality aspects, what their patterns are, where they like to live during certain times, where they like to move. Um, some of our research has found these fit. We've found these fish move a whole lot more than we would have expected. Um, some populations don't move at all. Uh, river fish tend to live in the river and stay in the river. Um, tributary fish are river fish as well. Um, they go to the tributaries to spawn. And then once spawning is over, they're back to the rivers to live. Um, some of those fish move hundreds of kilometers in a year. Huh. Understanding the seasonal behaviors, the fact that they, you know, overwinter uh, in, in the, in the deepest, slowest holes and they spend their time there in mass, um, pretty much a large portion of the population all comes to one or two places to spend the winter before redistributing them in the spring. So it kind of understanding where they're at and, and then also kind of where, what season we're in. Um, this time of year is actually one of the hardest, um, there, they can be just about anywhere as water drops, they'll kind of consolidate a little bit more, but also kind of understanding that right now they're coming out of the spawn. They're trying to recover. So they're gonna be feeding pretty heavily when you find them. So kind of understanding where they're at in their life cycle um, is pretty key in understanding fishing for smallmouth. I don't get to do as much of it as I'd like, <laughs> um, but I do get out occasionally few, several times a year to, to look for smallmouth. And, and like right now, I was just out, uh, not this past Friday, the Friday before, and we, we had a pretty good day um, on the upper west branch. And those fish were in their summer pattern and they were tight to shore and, and looking for things falling from the from the sky. And nice. it, it was so it was looking like summer already, even though it was like the first or second week of June. So they were they were getting ready to kind of recover from spawning and get back to that, get back to life as as they know it. Yeah. But I, once again, I think there's something to be said for, you know, paying attention to research, research studies and, you know, you, you could learn a lot from it. Be, you know, we're reading whitetail studies all the time that I think make us better outdoorsmen. And, you know, same applies as far as fishing research goes that you could, it can make you a better angler. So that's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of observation. Yeah. Just kind of pay attention to what's happening around to around you and, and, and kind of pick up on it. You know, people tell me things all the time and they'll say, they'll say something thinking they're telling me one thing and I pull something completely different out of it. Yeah. And, and, and that's a lot of it. You know, they said, well, I caught a fish here today. I'm like, that's strange. They shouldn't be there. Yeah. And you kind of think more like, this is why they're there or, or this is the situation that's going on. So you're kind of paying attention to the situation, documenting it. I know a lot of people tell me about that. They always are documenting river stage caught fish here and this is what the conditions were so yeah. they can go back and find it again so it's that pattern developing a pattern yeah um but yeah really being observant yeah about I, the situations that are they're going just not going out for going out sake yeah and you'll be much better with them yeah you gotta love that analytical mindset but Indeed. that uh that brings us up on an hour i told you it was gonna go by pretty quick um yep. It usually does. Yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on. I think that it, without a doubt calls for an episode two at some point because I, I still have a few items on the list that we didn't get to. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Any uh, wrap-up thoughts, Jay? Um, here's one. So we're, we're supposed to be uh, – we're all anticipating uh, a cicada hatch 
So is that going to be a, a, a pro or a, a con for, for fishermen? I mean, I know it's always a pro for the fish. I mean, it's just a, a, a crazy abundant food source. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as, as a fisherman, I mean, I, I tend to think that it's going to be a little bit of a more challenging state uh, when there's that much of an abundant food source to, to fish. But is that something that you would agree with or is, do you have a, like a different viewpoint on that? I don't. I know a lot of people that have fun with cicada hatches, especially, you know, on big fish, you know, in lakes and stuff where they're, you know, they're kind of isolated. That fish, that, that bug will fall in the water and be there for a long period of time and they catch carp and other big fish on them. That feeding frenzy thing can, can go both ways. You know, you're competing with a lot of other food items out there, mm-hmm. but other times it just turns them on so much you could throw you know, a spark plug out there and they'll hit it. Like, you know, it's not, yeah, right. <laughs> and, they, and they go either way. So it's really hard to predict a behavior, um, but something infrequent like that, it, it could be just a ticket at the right time. Just if you hit roll it, the dice. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's one thing I've had on my mind. I mean, I, I, I think it's cool. A lot of people freak out when the cicadas come around, but I think they're amazing. I think it's a great opportunity to do some photography and to kind of take my kids out and let them experience it. Uh, they are a little annoying, but I mean, it's just a, a cool part of nature. And I think, uh, you know, they, they get overlooked a little bit, but as from the fishing aspect of it, as they are, you know, a food source for these fish, I wanted to see what your, what your hot take was on that. Uh, yeah, on I don't really period. have a good one. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of, that, that was probably my only out of left field question that I had for you. And I, you know, yeah, you're like, gonna get one stab at this every 17 yep. years. Or so, kind <laughs> That's of. it. That's it. So, but yeah, man, like Mark said, man, we truly appreciate you taking some time to talk to us tonight. I mean, a lot of the people that, uh, you know, follow along with us are truly going to appreciate this and the amount of information you were able to share with us. I mean, I, I, like I said, I thought I had a decent handle on this, uh, and I learned a tremendous amount and, and I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to talk to us tonight. Not a problem. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And with that, we will wrap it up. I thank you, Jeff Smith for coming on and we, uh, we look forward to having you on again. Not a problem. Thank you, guys. All right. Go easy. Thank you. Thank you.